you are doing well. Thank you for joining us today. This is Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. I hope you are uh, having a great week, uh, start to your week, and I uh, trust that everything is going well with you there. Um, we're excited to continue reading through the New Testament, through the scriptures. Um, I hope you're doing it at home, and I hope you're enjoying reading God's Word, uh, trying to understand who Jesus is, who our triune God is, um, and how He transforms us so that our lives reflect His uh, His image in us and also reflect the fact of the, the great gospel truth that we have believed and embrace by faith. So thank you for being with us again this week. Um, This is uh, episode six, but it's week five in the uh, Bible reading plan for uh, January 30th, the week of January 30th, um, that Sunday and following. Um, So we are going to be reading this week, Matthew chapter 21 through 20. Matthew 21 through 25. So we've read 20 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew so far in the first four weeks. We are about ready to head towards the close of this first Gospel uh, book in the New Testament. So as we think about Matthew 21 through 25, we've we've seen Jesus' miracles. We've seen how he has, um, you know, who he is, what he has done. And now, as we uh, look at Jesus and his person, his, his work, we're now going to see Jesus ride into and come to Jerusalem. So, uh, Matthew 21 opens up, of course, with Jesus coming to Jerusalem and, and teaching in the temple. This was a huge deal, right? Um, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, He knows what he's doing. He knows the events that he's going to be kicking off this whole sequence, this last week of his life. He knows what he's doing. Um, It's it's amazing to realize that he rides in here on a Sunday, uh, the first day of the week, Palm Sunday, which we celebrate during um, the the Easter week, or sometimes it's called Holy Week um, in certain traditions. So Palm Sunday, right, he rides in, but by Friday he's dead. And he rides into the, the applause, the celebration, the, the singing, all of the positive things that happen as he rides in on this donkey um, into uh, Jerusalem. He comes, he enters the temple, and he, he cleanses it. He drives out the merchants, and then he welcomes the blind, the lame, into the temple. He heals them. Uh, he receives the praise of little children in the temple. Now, I think that's very fascinating, by the way, just real quick. Because these things are going to be centered around the temple in many ways here as Jesus comes and shows up in the temple. Remember earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had told uh, the religious leaders, he said, something greater than the temple is here. And he's referring, of course, about ultimately to himself. He is the greater uh, temple. Jesus, uh, remember in John's gospel, we're told, had said, right, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And everyone thought, oh, he's talking about the building made of brick and mortar. And Jesus is actually referring to himself. He is the place 
where God resides, where the divine glory is. Um, he is the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God in this world uh, that we visit. So Jesus replaces the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is the meeting place of God with man. He is God with us, fulfilling all of the functions and the um, everything that the temple was pointing Israel to, he is uh, for us. He is the, the gateway from heaven uh, to heaven, from, from earth, through and in him, his person and work. And it's interesting, as he comes to the temple, I just want to mention real quick here, he comes and he receives, notice what he does, he drives away the merchants, the people who uh, are in charge. He says, in, in one sense, he says, now this temple, even though it's only for a short time, in a sense, it's back open for business the way it should be. It was meant to be a house of prayer. It was meant to be a place where the broken and the sinful, the weak, the, the, the lame, the, the children, the lowly could come to God's house and be welcomed in and received and healed and forgiven and restored. And that had not been what the temple was for. Actually, the temple had become this place of uh, where it was about what you do and your standards and meeting the the accept the uh, the standards of of the law. Remember, Jesus had said before, "I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. I came not for the people who are healthy, but for those who realize they're sick." And actually, the temple all along in the Old Testament. And here, God is saying, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations in in Jeremiah. And if you read uh, Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings, I believe it's chapter 8, whenever he's praying, uh, somewhere there in the first part of 1 Kings, when Solomon's praying for the temple, what he does is he says he's praying to the Lord, and he says, Lord, if your people sin and they look to you, and, and it's interesting, it, it encompasses even Gentiles, it encompasses all sorts of situations where God's people find themselves in trouble. They are to look to the temple, pray to the temple, and Solomon says, Lord, hear their prayer. Meet their need, because God is a God of grace and compassion. He's a God of justice, and that is shown also in the sacrifices that are necessary. He's a God of righteousness and holiness that demands that we approach him in, in, in purity and in conformity with his holy law and character, and that's why the sacrifices were necessary. But still the point is, he was calling sinners, and Jesus is saying now, in a sense, the temple is, is, is open in a way that it's never been open for business before because I'm here. Well, he curses the fig tree and, and then eventually will enter the temple again, speaks with the religious leaders. He teaches in the temple. Remember later on, Jesus is going to say, I sat in the temple teaching all this time and, and you didn't arrest me. Why are you doing it now? And so Jesus is here teaching them and uh, really in show, showing up in the temple, and we will see him denounce the, the religious leaders. Um, in chapter 23, he denounces the scribes and the Pharisees and does this. We're told he's, he's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. So he, he's, he's God incarnate in the temple, in the house of God, the God of Israel. And he is now, the God of Israel has showed up in the temple, and he's here speaking to his people. He's welcoming the lame and the blind, and those who were supposed to be the people who were supposed to be shepherding God's people, but who actually have done a very poor job and actually have just simply abused the sheep, he denounces and uh, and 
actually is is denouncing them, and uh, but they refuse to come back to him in repentance and in faith. And then lastly, as he leaves the temple then, in chapter uh, 24, he leaves, right? Leaves the temple, goes to the Mount of Olives. This is really the, the, the last time that that temple really, really was uh, meant anything. Uh, that temple... Uh, was the place when, whenever the the tri, whenever the the incarnate God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, when He shows up in the temple, and yet Israel refuses Him there. This is the last time, really, that temple that was the glory then f- departing, and then Jesus says, right, that not a stone will be left, and He begins then in chapter twenty four and twenty five to uh, answer some questions of his disciples, but begins speaking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen within that generation. So we know Jesus, eventually by 70 AD, right, Jerusalem is a heap of rubble. And Jesus is foretelling it and telling his disciples what will happen. He's, he's letting them know. And also, this is an amazing prophecy that Jesus, before the destruction of the temple is coming, right? This is probably not even in the minds of these religious leaders or of Israel that that this was even possible, that this great temple that Herod had built could possibly be leveled, but it would, and it would happen actually within the coming generation, within, what, 40 years or so. Uh, Jesus is saying this whole thing is going to be leveled. And he also then points to his his coming as well at at the close of the age, um, where he will gather and divide uh, his people from the the unbelieving uh, world as well, the sheep and the goats, as he as he describes it. So that is what's going to happen here um, in in Matthew twenty one through through twenty five, right before twenty six, where we see Jesus eating the Last Supper with his disciples and is betrayed and goes to the cross and and so on. So what can we learn uh, from this section of Scripture, this important section of Scripture uh, from Matthew 21 through uh, 25? Well, I'm going to, of course, read again from some stuff from J.C. Ryle. I hope you've, uh, I've heard some, um, you know, I've had at least one conversation with with, uh, someone in our church who was mentioning about how they, um, they, uh, uh, I think, had, had appreciated uh, J.C. Ryle and such. And, and I think, I hope you are enjoying him as well, because uh, he, he is a great writer from the past, right? Very easy to understand. So he, he, uh, he, he has this section upon Christ's public entry to Jerusalem in Matthew 21. And he writes this, These verses contain a very remarkable passage in our Lord Jesus Christ's life. They describe his public entry into Jerusalem when he came there for the last time before he was crucified. There is something peculiarly striking in this incident in our Lord's history. The narrative reads like the account of some royal conqueror's return to his own city. A very great multitude accompanies him in a kind of triumphal procession. Loud cries and expressions of praise are heard around him. All the city was stirred up. The whole transaction is singularly at variance with the past tenor of our Lord's life. It is curiously unlike the ways of him who did not cry nor strive nor let his voice be heard in the streets, who withdrew himself from the multitude on other occasions and said to those healed, See that you say nothing to any man. Mark one forty four. And yet, the whole transaction admits of explanation. The reasons of this public entry are not hard to find out. Let us see what they were. 
The plain truth is that our Lord knew well that the time of his earthly ministry was drawing to a close. He knew that the hour was approaching when he must finish the mighty work he came to do by dying for our sins upon the cross. He knew that his last journey had been accomplished and that there remained nothing now in his earthly ministry but to be offered as a sacrifice on Calvary. Knowing all this, he no longer, as in time past, sought secrecy. Knowing all this, he thought it good to enter the place where he was to be delivered to death with peculiar solemnity and publicity. It was not fitting that the Lamb of God should come to be slain on Calvary privately and silently. Before the great sacrifice for the sins of the world was offered up, it was right that every eye should be fixed on the victim. It was suitable that the crowning act of our Lord's life should be done with as much notoriety as possible. Therefore, it was that he made this public entry. Therefore, it was that he attracted to himself the eyes of the wandering multitude. Therefore, it was that all Jerusalem was moved. The atoning blood of the Lamb of God was about to be shed. The deed was not to be done in a corner. Acts 26, 26. This is a a great point because before this time in Jesus' ministry, right, he is always um, discouraging publicity, right? Remember um, whenever he breaks the and feeds the breaks the bread and the fish right and feeds the uh, 5000 we're told in John chapter 6 that they wanted at that time they got free food and they saw this miracle and they were about ready to to take Jesus and make him king and and Jesus purposely and intentionally withdraws from there um and and doesn't allow that and he does these things too right where he'll heal people heal people and um say uh, don't tell anyone about this this is because Jesus, but but now, right, Jesus all of a sudden now is going uh, public. And this ride into Jerusalem is a very public, upfront, open act. And the question is, why is he doing this? Well, in a sense, while Jesus' whole life and ministry was important, this last week, Sunday to Sunday, the first this first day of the week to the next first day of the week, this one week, Everything has been aiming towards this week. His whole life has been leading up to this moment. And so he goes public whenever he really wants us to see, this is really what I am about. This is really why I came. Yes, I came to heal and to comfort and have compassion, but I show my compassion and I heal and I save through my cross and my resurrection. So he's... All of these other things are meant to point us to this last week. The first 30-some years of Jesus' life are simply to point us and to lead to and to and are connected to this one last week. This is why the Gospel writers uh, summarize so much of Jesus' life in this last week, right? Matthew's Gospel is 28 chapters, and yet 21 through 28 are taking up just the one week of Jesus' life. Which is, which highlights again uh, Jesus's the whole the whole uh, focus upon his cross his resurrection he's going public here and so he's he is highlighting his role as the Lamb of God so that everyone will see this one is the Son of God he draws all the attention all the watching eyes of the world to himself so that he will be lifted up as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness 
by Moses, right? So that everyone who looks to this man on the cross and, and Pilate, right, will say, behold the man. And, and Matthew is full of irony uh, throughout. He, you know, one of the things you, you notice, especially about the uh, Jewish writers, is how much irony is here, right? Little do the people here know as they're celebrating, right, Jesus coming in here, uh, riding in on a donkey, and they they still have in the, their minds that he's a political ruler, um, that he's, he's coming uh, to save them in one way, but little do they know he's coming to save them in quite a different way through his cross and his blood and his death and his resurrection. He comes humble, comes to them riding on a donkey. And here he is, here he is. And it reminds me of Psalm 118, right? Where it says, bind the sacrifice. And Jesus is here showing. And as we look back, we see what he was doing. He was riding in as the king, as the righteous one, as the the perfect lamb of God, without blame, without spot, and riding in so that he could be bound as the sacrifice for our sins, and to save his people from their sins. Powerful stuff, uh, beautiful stuff. This is what he's come uh, to do. Now, Jesus rides in, right? And, and we see uh, Jesus with the, the children. Um, Spurgeon has a, a very interesting sermon called um, The Children and Their Hosannas, whenever the children come and cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And uh, it's actually when he was uh, addressing Sunday school workers. And it's a very helpful sermon to remind us of the, uh, the, the reality that children are capable of faith and repentance and prayer and joy and uh, hatred of evil. He, he highlights all these things. Um, and, and perhaps sometimes we today uh, don't really grasp uh, the, the, the ability that God really has given children to believe the gospel. They need to be converted. And what a wonderful thing it is. Jesus says, actually, that I'm glorified through these little ones praising me. Um, and, and likewise, the church today should be the place where the little ones are welcomed and their praises are, are we, they, they praise God right alongside all of us, all of the adults, and um, their praises are acceptable in the ears of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus begins to give some some parables, which the Pharisees and the religious leaders realize he's directing right at them. Um, No one spoke like this man, right? Uh, So now, Matthew uh, 22, where Jesus gives the parable of the wedding feast, right? The, The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a wedding feast, a king who wants to give a wedding feast for his son, and he sends all these servants out and says, come, the the wedding feast is ready, and they refuse to come, right? And so he um, he sends his troops to go and to burn that city of those people who refuse to come to the wedding feast. And then he sends his servants out to go out and to pull everyone they can, good and bad, off the streets and, and the highways and the byways everywhere. Go find them and bring them in, compel them to come into my house and enjoy the feast. And uh, then closes with, the uh, the last story where there's somebody who comes in without a wedding garment, uh, but he he is cast out, and Jesus closes with this phrase: "For many are called, but few are chosen." And J.C. Ryle has an, has a really helpful explanation of this parable, and I want to read this an extended section to you. Um, 
because I think it's just really good. It's really helpful as we think about this passage of Scripture. He writes this, J.C. Ryle, Let us observe in the first place that the salvation of the gospel is compared to a marriage feast. The Lord Jesus tells us that a certain king made a marriage feast for his son. There is in the gospel a complete provision for all the needs of man's soul. There is a supply of everything that can be required to relieve spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. Pardon, peace with God, lively hope in this world, glory in the world to come, are set before us in rich abundance. It is a feast of fat things. All this provision is owing to the love of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He offers to take us into union with himself, to restore us to the family of God as dear children, to clothe us with his righteousness, to give us a place in his kingdom, and to present us faultless before his Father's throne at the last day. The gospel, in short, is an offer of food to the hungry, joy to the mourner, a home to the outcast, a loving friend to the lost. It is glad tidings. God offers through his dear Son to be at peace with sinful man. Let us not forget this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let us observe in the second place, Ryle continues, that the invitations of the gospel are wide, full, broad, and unlimited. The Lord Jesus tells us in the parable that the king's servants said to those who were bidden, All things are ready. Come to the marriage feast. There is nothing lacking on God's part for the salvation of sinners' souls. No one will ever be able to say at last that it was God's fault if he be not saved. Or excuse me, if he is not saved. The Father is ready to love and receive. The Son is ready to pardon and cleanse guilt away. The Spirit is ready to sanctify and renew. Angels are ready to rejoice over the returning sinner. Grace is ready to assist him. The Bible is ready to instruct him. Heaven is ready to be his everlasting home. One thing only is needful, and that is, the sinner must be ready and willing himself. Let this also never be forgotten. Let us not quibble and split hairs upon this point. God will be found clear of the blood of all lost souls. The gospel always speaks of sinners as responsible and accountable beings. The gospel places an open door before all mankind. No one is excluded from the range of its offers. Though efficient only to believers, those offers are sufficient for all the world. Though few enter the straight gate, all are invited to come in. He continues, and, I, and I, I just think this is really good. Again, let us observe in the third place that the salvation of the gospel is rejected by many to whom it is offered. The Lord Jesus tells us that those whom the king's servants invited to the wedding made light of it and went their ways. There are thousands of hearers of the gospel who derive from it no benefit whatever. They listen to it Sunday after Sunday and year after year and do not believe to the saving of the soul. They feel no special need of the gospel. They see no special beauty in it. They do not perhaps hate it or oppose it or scoff at it, but they do not receive it into their hearts. They like other things far better. Their money, their lands, their business or their pleasures are all far more interesting subjects to look or to them than their souls. It is a dreadful state of mind to be in, but awfully common. Let us search our own hearts and take heed that it is not our own. Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. 
multitude will find themselves in hell, not so much because they openly broke the Ten Commandments, as because they made light of the gospel. Christ died for them on the cross, but they neglected him. Let us observe in the last place, Ryle concludes here under this last section, that all false professors of religion will be detected, exposed, and eternally condemned at the last day. The Lord Jesus tells us that when the wedding was at last furnished with guests, the king came in to see them and saw a man who didn't have on wedding clothing. He asked him how he came in there without one, and he received no reply. And then he commanded the servants to bind him hand and foot and take him away. There will always be some false professors in the church of Christ, as long as the world stands. And by false professors, of course, uh, you know, he's, he's meaning uh, people who profess to be believers, but who, who really in their hearts are not. In this parable, as Kesnell says, one single castaway represents all the rest. It is impossible to read the hearts of men. Deceivers and hypocrites will never be entirely excluded from the ranks of those who call themselves Christians. So long as a man professes subjection to the gospel and lives an outwardly correct life, we dare not say positively that he is not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But there will be no deception at the last day. The unerring eye of God will discern who are his own people and who are not. Nothing but truth faith shall abide the fire of his judgment. All spurious Christianity shall be weighed in the balance and found lacking. None but true believers shall sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It shall avail the hypocrite nothing that he has been a loud talker about religion and had the reputation of being an eminent Christian among men. His triumphing shall be but for a moment. He shall be stripped of all his borrowed plumage and stand naked and shivering before the bar of God, speechless, self-condemned, hopeless, and helpless. He shall be cast into outer darkness with shame and reap according as he has sown. Well may our Lord say, there shall be weeping and grinding of teeth. Let us learn wisdom from the solemn pictures of this parable and give diligence to make our calling and election sure. We ourselves are among those to whom the word is spoken. All things are ready. Come to the marriage feast. Let us see that we refuse not him that speaks. Let us not sleep as others do, but watch and be sober. Time hastens on. The king will soon come in to see the guests. Have we or have we not got on the wedding garment? Have we put on Christ? That is the grand question that arises out of this parable. May we never rest until we can give a satisfactory answer. May those heart-searching words daily ring in our ears. Many are called, but few are chosen. That is a powerful uh, exposition and walkthrough of that parable, I, I think. Um, again, reminding us of the fullness of the offers. We go to all the world as, as, as individual Christians. We, we take the gospel um, with all of its power and sufficiency, and we take it to our family members, to our children, to our neighbors, to our fellow church members. Um, we remind each other of these things. We go to the world. Um, we share it with our lost co-workers or for, with, with other people who are, who are not Christians. We, we, we pass this out, but we are reminded that, uh, and, and we do so because uh, the gospel is glad tidings. We are calling them to a marriage feast, to, to the feast of God, where, where God says, come, it's all ready, come. Um, and we, we, we want them to come, and we desire them to come. We pray for them to come. And we know that the Holy Spirit will call all of, his, all of those that have been chosen before the foundation of the world. They will come. 
And we go to all the world and offer this Christ because he offers himself there. Um, but we're also reminded of the sobering reality that there are some, that there, there are many are called, but few are chosen. We have to let those words sink in that Jesus spoke in this parable. Everyone is invited who hears the word, but not everyone believes savingly to their souls and receives the great gift that Jesus is. And also, it, it reminds us as well that um, we need to be—we need to examine ourselves in in, in helpful ways, um, in ways that we don't want to be just prone to introspection all the time. But there's also a healthy way in which we are making sure, as Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. Test yourselves. And here, similarly, we see that it is possible um, to profess Christianity, to profess to be a believer. Um, but to be internally, not so. Um, there will be people in heaven probably that we will be very surprised. <laughs> I mean, um, sometimes we'll see, and maybe you think about uh, other people, and, the, and we'll be surprised to see each other in heaven. But then there may be others as well that we are surprised are not there because externally they looked like godly people, and we want to be in charity. We want to... Um, give them the benefit of the doubt, right? We have no reason to think ill of them. But also, it's just a good reminder to remind all of us and to remind each other um, that we, we need to examine ourselves to make sure that this is not simply an external religion, but it's actually something that we believe with our hearts and we're resting upon the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Okay, so... Jesus gives these parables, and then eventually, uh, you know, he he uh, leaves, or he's going to eventually leave the temple um, as well. And then in Matthew twenty three, he gives some scathing rebukes and denounces and woes to the scribes and to the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites. They're two faced. They're actors. They're religious actors, and Jesus condemns them because they they actually have a quite shallow view of religion. It's all external to them. They think that they can do the stuff. So they think they can obey the law. And to them, religion is about um, checking all the boxes. Religion is something that that um, is primarily um, about how we externally. So, you know, uh, remember, remember how the Pharisees thought about things, right? They didn't think that they were murderers because they hadn't actually taken a knife to somebody. But underneath, they were full of hatred. And we see hatred for Christ, right? And Jesus says that's actually the heart. That's actually where this sin comes from. Your hearts are filthy. Um, they, they were people who cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside it was full of sin. They didn't go to the root of it. And uh, Jesus here is, is denouncing them. Uh, they were they were characterized by pride and greed and arrogance, and we I think it's very convicting as you read this passage because if you're like me, you can't help but notice things about yourself, um, your sinful heart. There's still um, <clears throat> in our old the nature that remains, the sin that remains in us, and uh, who we were before uh, embracing Christ by faith. We realize that's us, and we are. Uh, we are prideful, selfish uh, people that think that we're actually not that bad as long as we keep the externals good, right? We don't cuss, we don't drink, we don't do this or that or whatever other rules we make up for ourselves. 
and we can think we're doing pretty good, but then if we're honest with ourselves, um, we realize that our hearts are evil, and we need a Savior to cleanse those, and he will do that and give us a new heart to be born again. Um, and the Pharisees were unable to do that. Uh, they, they did not see that, at least. Now, we praise God that after he rose from the grave, they did, you know, some of them did, Paul being amongst them, right, who was a Pharisee, um, who came to see his sin and also the great salvation found in Christ crucified. But now, Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus here uh, is teaching, and he says this. Uh, well, let me, let me read verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. J.C. Ryle has this to say about this, this verse here. He says, um, we see, this is Ryle, we see in the last place that there is no grace which should distinguish the Christian so much as humility. He that would be great in the eyes of Christ must aim at a totally different mark from that of the Pharisees. His aim must not be so much to rule as to serve the church. Well, says Baxter, church greatness consists in being greatly serviceable. The desire of the Pharisees was to receive honor and to be called master. The desire of the Christian must be to do good and to give himself and all that he has to the service of others. Truly, this is a high standard, but a lower one must never content us. The example of our blessed Lord, the direct command of the apostolic epistles, both alike require us to be clothed with humility. 1 Peter 5, 5. Let us seek that blessed grace day by day. No grace is so beautiful, however much despised by the world. No grace is such an evidence of saving faith and true conversion to God. No grace is so often commended by our Lord. Of all his sayings, hardly any is so often repeated as that which concludes the passage we have now read. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that is so true, and yet something I think uh, <laughs> we all forget, humility. Jesus said earlier, right, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're told in Philippians, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself and how did he do that? Not by getting rid of his divinity. In a sense, I've heard it said that this is subtraction by addition. He made himself nothing, in a sense, by adding to himself human nature, taking the form of a servant. That is humility. That is looking to the interest of others. That is love, isn't it? Looking out for the welfare of other people and pursuing their interests and what's good for them even at the expense of yourself. And Jesus does that. He is the great example. It is amazing, isn't it, that um, Jesus, God incarnate, is the most humble being in the universe. And yet, we are the people who have the most to be humble for. And yet, our God taking to himself our flesh and our blood, the form of a servant, is the one who puts us all to shame in the area of humility and lowliness. 
he is a God who, I've heard it kind of put like this, he likes to get his hands dirty. He did not look down at our situation and think that it was too dirty for him to get down here. Remember, he's the immortal, infinite, unchangeable, eternal God who cannot die. And yet, he condescends in love and compassion and takes to himself a body that can die, a form of a servant, us, so that he could serve us and wash us and save us and die for us and raise us and bring him back, bring us to the Father with him. That is amazing love and humility. And um, if that's the way our master was, that's the way we should be. And this is a good, this is something that we should all aim at. Uh, pastors have to aim at this. Um, this is convicting because, uh, you know, we are, uh, the job of a pastor is to be a shepherd. And what did Jesus again do as the shepherd? He laid down his life for the sheep. And so pastors are to give of themselves, to not think of themselves, and to, to look to the good of the sheep and to the glory of God. And if we are church members or we think, you know, I'm, I'm uh, you know, just an ordinary Christian, there's, uh, you are called to humility just like Christ as well. Humility as in your callings. You have holy callings that God has given you. In your calling in the church, you are to, as, Paul, as our pastor recently talked about, submit yourselves to one another. That calls for humility. It says, out of reverence for Christ. In your callings in the family, you're to express humility towards one another. Be clothed with humility um, towards your children, towards your spouse, towards your parents. Um, in your job, in your workplace, you're to be clothed with humility to your employer. Or if you're an employer, be clothed in humility to those um, who, are, who you employ or who you are over. You are also called to serve them in your, in your vocation. And in our vocations in the state and in the government world and society at large, we are to be servants clothed with humility. This should be the thing that characterizes us in all of our vocations, all of the places and callings that God has given to us in this world. We are to manifest this humility of Christ. This should be the characteristic that should mark us. And think as well with me about, I mean, you can think about it as well. All the things that are brought about, the problems in our families, uh, in marriages, uh, between neighbors and in church life because of pride, right? Uh, whether that be uh, pastors being prideful and lording it over other people or church members being prideful um, against their um, against uh, leaders in the church or against other church members or whether it be um, in our homes, right? Parents being prideful over against their children, lording it over them or children disrespecting their parents or uh, you could so on and on and on. But how would that be solved in, in, by grace if we were changed into the image of Christ and expressed in humility, lowliness? reality is is that you and I as sinners we have a lot to be humble for and nothing to be arrogant about we have only to boast in Christ only to boast in the grace and the free and and grace remember is not a substance grace is simply the free favor that God gives to us 
in Christ. It's his favor, his disposition uh, towards us. That's the only thing we have to boast in, in what Christ has done for us. And we have everything to be humble about. And so let's cloak ourselves in humility and see the beauty of that in our Lord Jesus. And then as Christ is in us, we will be, um, I think Luther calls us little Christ. <laughs> we, are, we are little Christ to each other. Christ works in us and through us to serve each other. So Christ is all in all. Lastly, <clears throat> Uh, Jesus is speaking, of course, in the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 through 25. Um, he speaks about um, different things, and these, of course, are more difficult chapters. And if we deny the fact that they can be difficult, I think that <laughs> um, uh, I think that the reality is is all of Scripture is inspired. Some parts are plainer than others. And so these are more challenging, aren't they? More challenging passages of Scripture. And um, Jesus is here talking about different things. Uh, He talks about the destruction of Jerusalem coming in 70 AD. So he's talking about that. But he's also looking forward to the future, to his second coming in the close of the age, when he will return and divides the sheep from the goats, which he talks about as well. So there's there's much, uh, you know, you can do some research on your own and, and look up different interpretations about what each of these verses mean and how to understand them. But at the very end, I want to look here, uh, the last parable when Jesus separates the sheep uh, from the goats. And uh, we see here in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And uh, Jesus here is the king and the judge. And think about, by the way, how radical a statement that is. Here is this guy, Jesus, looks to all appearances like an ordinary carpenter from Galilee, um, who's now is being celebrated and uh, as uh, coming into Jerusalem, right? But notice he's not simply, and people are saying, here's the king, but Jesus is not simply saying that I'm the uh, a king of Israel, but he's saying, Everyone's fates, the fate, the eternal fates of every person who's ever lived are going to be determined by me. Now, now, that's either one of two things. Either Jesus really is the Lord of all glory, or as C.S. Lewis says, he's a lunatic. So because, right, these are not, if Jesus is not who he says he is, these are crazy statements to make, right? Let those sink in. This is what we believe. We believe there was a guy who died in now, in, uh, on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago who claimed to say that the eternal fates of everyone who's ever lived are dependent upon his decision. And we believe that. Now, think about that. Let that sink in because we do believe that is true. We believe that he is God in human flesh, but also realize that to the world, that is a crazy statement, um, if you really think about it. So he's either Lord, or as Lewis says, he's lunatic. Now, we worship him as Lord because we are convinced by the evidence and by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the scriptures that he is who he says he is. Um, but for those who don't see that, they do not see Jesus the same way. So Christ is the judge. This is, again, lastly closing with J.C. Ryle. That same Jesus who was born in the manger of Bethlehem and took upon him the form of a servant 
who was despised and rejected of men and often had not where to lay his head, who was condemned by the princes of this world, beaten, scourged, and nailed to the cross, that same Jesus shall himself judge the world when he comes in his glory. To him the Father has committed all judgment. John 5.22 To him at last every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Philippians 2.10 and 11 Let believers think of this and take comfort. He that sits upon the throne in that great and dreadful day will be their Savior, their Shepherd, their High Priest, their Elder Brother, their Friend. When they see him, they will have no cause to be alarmed. Let unconverted people think of this and be afraid. Their Judge will be that very Christ, whose gospel they now despise and whose gracious invitations they refuse to hear. How great will be their confusion at last if they go on in unbelief and die in their sins. To be condemned in the day of judgment by anyone would be dreadful, but to be condemned by him who would have saved them will be dreadful indeed. Well may the psalmist say, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Psalm 2, verse 12. So we will close with that. Jesus, the King, the judge of all the earth, calls us to himself. To his people, he is a great comfort. To his enemies, to those who do not trust in him, they have right to be terrified and afraid, but also then to let that terror drive them into his arms, to kiss the sun, lest he be angry to, to come to him and find refuge in this one. Because as we're going to find out next week, and as we read about his cross and his resurrection and then begin the, the next gospel of Mark, we're going to see this Savior, this King, this Judge is ready and willing to receive us. The question is, will we receive him or will we not? Okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I hope uh, that this has been encouraging to you. I hope you're continuing to read the Bible. And I hope, um, you know, if you have any questions, please always reach out to me and talk to me. Um, let me know how you're, what you like about the podcast. Um, it's always good to get feedback or what we could maybe change. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, uh, if you're interested, check out J.C. Ryle online. Uh, look at his, his expository thoughts. They're helpful, uh, fun to read, uh, good stuff. Okay, well, we'll close with our uh, music here. And then thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless.